questions and answers. What are the principles that made America great? How are those principles revealed in our founding documents in history? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucaran. Pat is an international teacher, speaker, and author in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on our broadcast, Pat and his guest, Rick Green, examine the formula that led to the remarkable rise of the great nation and land that we love, America. Now... Here's Pat. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Jesus Christ and biblical answers to the issues of today. America. Has America been a force for good or evil in the world? What is it that made America such a great and prosperous nation in such a short time? We have with us a guest, Rick Green. He is a former Texas State Representative, a national speaker, author, and radio host. Rick serves with Wall Builders, a fantastic ministry and organization here, and co-hosts the national daily radio program, Wall Builders Live. Rick is the author and executive producer of Constitution Alive, America's most engaging and entertaining study of the United States Constitution. Rick is the founder and president of Patriot Academy, which trains young leaders in the founding principles as they participate in mock legislative sessions held in state capitals across the nation. He and his wife, Kara, have four kids. And also, he started a new TV show, Chasing American Legends, a new TV show that follows their family as they investigate America's heroes, legends, and legacies. So, Rick, welcome to Evidence and Answers. Hey, Pat, my pleasure to be with you, bro. Well, Rick, you know, there's a lot of talk about American history, and unfortunately, in public schools, we often don't get the full picture of American history. So tell us briefly about the unique founding of America and what were the principles upon which our nation was founded? Well, we've definitely, uh, we definitely get a skewed view today. There's probably more anti-America, run America down, you know, propaganda and, and uh, material in our, in our schools than there is pro-America, when in fact the education system was designed to teach us how to be good citizens. The whole purpose of public education was to make sure we had an informed citizenry that understood our you know, constitutional republic and our free enterprise system. And unfortunately, that's not being taught. So if the schools aren't doing it, and too often we don't do it in the churches anymore either, we have to get educated on these things. So Pat, thank you. I, I really appreciate you even being willing to discuss these things and, and bring this to your audience. Short answer is um, certainly the American founding unique in the history of the world. They, they, their ideas were not you know, individually uh, brand new, but bringing them all together the way that they did absolutely was. And, and it changed not just this this continent or this country here in, here in the United States and this new country that would be formed, but the entire world. I mean, this, this model of actually saying that government is not almighty, that the rights and freedoms that we have do not come from the king or, or the sovereign government entity, but instead that they actually come from a creator. That, you know, that, that concept, um, actually an Old Testament idea, really set up a, a different philosophy for how our government would run, because now instead of the people having to answer to the politicians and the government, the government and the politicians have to answer to us. And it, and it really was a unique idea uh, for its time anyway. In 1776, everywhere in the world, everything came from the king. You know, that was the, the, that was the, you had the divine right of kings, and that was a very dangerous concept. So even just that idea of the source of freedom being God, 
given that freedom directly to the people, and then the people choosing, as the, as the founders described it in the Declaration of Independence, it said that, that the just powers of government would come from the consent of the governed. So, so these governments that we instituted among men, another phrase out of the Declaration, that they would only get just power from us. And so that concept of limited government, of jurisdictional government, not almighty government, not unlimited government, but a government that could only do what the people had said it could do, that's what put in motion uh, this nation that, frankly, produced the most wealth, the most freedom, uh, the most military power and might used in a, a, a for more benevolence than, than any nation in the history of the world. I mean, it, the fact that America shows up when there's a tragedy anywhere in the world and does everything they can to help, doesn't matter if that's an Islamic nation or a Christian nation or whatever, we're willing to help. And that's a biblical foundation that, that gave us that. But it all comes back to those basic principles in the Declaration of Independence, the fact that there is a God, that he's the source of our freedom, that he gives it directly to we the people, and then we have a duty and responsibility to hold that government accountable is truly a unique formula. Yes, you know, America is not a, quote, Christian nation, but definitely our founding was built, as you stated, on biblical principles. I mean, all the way back to the Mayflower Compact, you know, is built on the idea of Old Testament covenant. Uh, back then, I believe that there wasn't uh, written down a covenant like that. Uh, in Europe, it was mostly oral tradition handed down by the kings and the Puritans and the Mayflower Compact was something unique that was built on the design of the Old Testament covenant. Yeah, and, and actually, I would, you know, I would argue when we say we're not a Christian nation, it depends on what we mean by that, right? I mean, if, if it means that everybody has to be a Christian to be a part of our nation, definitely not. But if it means that we're a nation that has at its forefront and at its foundation Christian principles, then definitely. There was, I can't remember the historian's name. There was a guy that the way he described it um, was that the uh, Christianity was the atmosphere the founders were breathing, and so it permeated right. everything in the, in the country. And, and in fact, let me just share a couple of quotes with you on that. You know, guys that judges and, and presidents and others that referred to us as a as a quote Christian nation, but I, but again, what they meant by that was not you can't participate or enjoy the same freedom. Look, you can live in America and be Muslim, atheist, you know, Buddhist, whatever, and you still get to enjoy all the freedoms and blessings that being a Christian nation actually produced. Because what a what a Christian nation produces is a Republican form of government, the rights of conscience, a, a free market an institutional separation of, of, the, of the church and the state, a free market system that lets people keep the uh, reward of, of their work. So all those things come from a Christian worldview and, and what we would call, quote, a, a Christian nation. Yes. For example, you know, the, you know, our founding documents, the biblical concepts and the Christian you know, ideas that are in there are just undeniable. I mean, the Mayflower Compact, in the name of God, amen, whose names are underwritten, the loyal subjects of our dread sovereign Lord King James, having undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith and honor of our king and country. You know, that's the Mayflower Compact. The Declaration of Independence, you know, our birth certificate has that famous line. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. They are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights that among these life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So there in our birth certificate, creation, creator, God-given moral absolutes. These are definitely biblical concepts here upon which our nation was founded, and they're right there in the founding documents. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, man. And that's, that's why, you know, one of the things I really encourage 
leaders to do and, and uh, citizens to encourage their schools to do is just read the founding documents. I mean, if you just break out the founding documents and read them, you're going to get those those truths. Uh, I looked. Uh, I couldn't remember the guy's name. It was Stephen Caldwell was the was the historian. And, and let me just read to you what he said. He said it was uh, it was in the very spirit of true Christianity that the hospitality and blessings of the United States were offered to the whole world. All were invited to enjoy it. The Christian men of that day intended that the nation should continue to be a Christian nation. They did not place Christianity beneath nor over their political institutions. Rather, it was to be the atmosphere which they breathed to administer them. It was the source of their inspiration, and they sought to make the blessings available for human advantage. These institutions and laws were to be the instruments of Christian men for the good of the whole human family. I think that right there, Pat, is what's missed sometimes. Part of the reason we get such pushback when we say the nation was founded on Christian principles or as a Christian nation or whatever, is that too often our perception of that is, oh, well, that means you're going to be a theocracy and you're going to make everybody, you know, right. basically yeah. convert at the sword, but, you know, that kind of mentality, where, where what they meant by it was this is to take these, these Christ-like principles of treating your fellow man the way you want to be treated, all those things, and actually taking that and making it good for the whole human family. I love the way he did he described that, and so it's it's actually a huge blessing, not a curse. And and uh, and just real quick, uh, Woodrow Wilson said, "America was born a Christian nation. America was born to exemplify that devotion to the elements of righteousness, which are derived from the revelations of Holy Scripture." Uh, Harry Truman said, "This is a Christian nation, and this." great country of ours has been demonstrated the fundamental unity of Christianity and democracy. The fundamental basis of our Bill of Rights comes from the teachings which we get from Exodus and St. Matthew and from Isaiah and St. Paul. I don't think we emphasize it that enough these days. That was what that was what Truman saying what you know seventy years ago. So we're certainly emphasizing it a whole lot less today. But it has cost us greatly to lose that identity of understanding that the the reason that so many of these things have worked so well in our culture is they actually had a source, and it was the Judeo Christian values. Yes, you know, and today there's a strong movement to remove America's Christian heritage from our history books. You know, but the Christian principles and heritage is just undeniable. Tell us uh, of the evidence that reveals our Christian heritage. And secondly, you know, why there is such a strong desire to remove this from our history books? Yeah, I mean, if you go through, even even just take the men themselves, the found, the guys we consider to be the founding fathers, about 250 of those guys, uh, that's basically your signers of the Declaration, Constitution, the, the major uh, generals of, of the Revolution, governors of the time, and all your key players in those pivotal, you know, 20, 25 years uh, of the beginning of our nation, those men consider to be the founding fathers. I mean, if you take them and you really study their lives, and not just what they said in private or claimed in private, but how they acted in public, what they did in, in government office, uh, what, what kind of laws they implemented. When you look at those 250 guys, 95% of them, so I mean almost all of them, there's about 10 that I have to take off the table, but the other 95% outspoken Christians, lived it, talked it, spoke it, wrote it. I mean, you, they started Bible societies. They, I mean, we could do quotes all day long of the things that they said and, and the things that they believed. There's about 10 guys that you got to say, okay, they weren't Christians. They weren't atheists. They weren't agnostics or deists. I mean, but they weren't Christians. They didn't believe 
that Jesus was the Son of God. They didn't believe in the divinity of Christ. So by any orthodox definition, we can't call them Christians. And and, and a handful of those you'd recognize, and some of them you wouldn't, but I mean, some of those guys are, are guys like Jefferson, who, you know, part of his life, he was an outspoken Christian. I mean, he kind of bounced around. If you go through his entire life, he was orthodox Christian at times. Later in life, he, he renounced the, you know, some of the, like the virgin birth and some other major tenets of, of Christianity. But man, he certainly supported the Christian religion and supported its influence in the culture. Same thing with Benjamin Franklin. He never claimed to be, quote-unquote, a Christian and, and believing in the divinity of Christ, but, man, told Whitfield, if we could just, you know, make Christianity what everybody adhered to, we'd have the greatest, you know, nation in the world for sure, and certainly was the one, even at the Constitutional Convention, to stand up and call the guys to prayer and say, how do y'all think we could possibly succeed as a nation if we don't call on the Father of Lights to illuminate our understanding, we're not smart enough to do this on our own. We need God to bless what we're doing the same way that he did the revolution itself, and he recounted for them, you know, times throughout the revolution that God showed up and uh, on the side of the Americans. And so those are your least religious guys. I mean, those are the ones that aren't Christian. That's, that's, that's that 10 I'm taking off the table. But the rest of them really encourage people to go actually read their writings, read what they actually said and did. Don't do what I did, which was I, I, you know, I just took my law school professor's word for it and thought, you know, okay, the founders were all slave owners, they were all anti-religion, they were all, you know, all that. And then, you know, when I went and started reading what they actually said, I realized I'd been lied to. I mean, I, that's what's happened in a lot of our education system. Yes, you know, I believe 50 of the 55 men who signed the Constitution were committed Christian men of the Christian faith. I think 26 of them had Bible college or seminary degrees, and, but unfortunately... Yeah, you've got, you've got, I mean, think about those numbers. It's like, it's, it's, it's mm -hmm. 20, we found three others that actually had seminary degrees. It's 29 of the 56 that signed the declaration went to what we would call a seminary today. I mean, they were literally translating New Testament, you know, scriptures and whatnot by seven in the morning when they were going to school. I mean, they, you know, incredible. And then you got 55 guys that framed the Constitution, 39 that signed it, because some of them uh, left before they got to the signing, but 55 that framed it. The vast majority of those guys, I mean, literally, like I said earlier, started Bible societies. Uh, we could give you speeches and sermons they gave at public school graduations. I mean, just the list goes on and on. There's no question their faith was a Christian faith, that it informed everything that they did. And so that brings us to then, okay, but what does that mean? Even if they believed, even if they were Christians, didn't they give us a nation that had this quote-unquote separation of church and state? I even mentioned earlier that, that, that Christianity actually gives us an institutional separation of church and state, but not the separation of church and state that the leftist and the, and the atheists try to create today. They want a separation of religion and state. They want a separation of faith and state. They want to keep people from even being able to express their faith or live out their faith in the public square, whether it's, you know, at the at the football game or, or it's at, you know, in a government position or whatever. And that is not at all what the founders wanted. They wanted us to be able to live out our faith no matter what area of the culture we were in and no matter what that, that faith was. That was the separation of the whole idea of the First Amendment was to keep the government from telling you what you could do or say, not to keep us from influencing government. Yes, you know, people got that completely turned around, especially here, you know, in the state of Hawaii. Prayer has been removed from our legislature. You cannot have manger scenes or anything, any kind of Christian decoration at Christmas on public grounds. Public schools here have not been allowed to have their, you know, Christmas concerts if they talk about Jesus or, you know, anything 
you know, Crazy. Christian like that. And that's not what the founding fathers meant when they said separation of church and state. And, and all you got to do is look at their actions, right? I mean, if you, you just like you mentioned, not praying at, at the legislature, I mean, you look at the actions of the founders and, and people today, I mean, it blows their minds. We, we can show you over 1,400, that's 1,400 actual calls to prayer and prayer proclamations by the Continental Congress, by the actual Congress later, by governors, by presidents, in government positions calling on their state or the nation to actually pray, and literally calling for not just prayer, not not just kind of a, hey, everybody, you know, pray in whatever your way to pray is. No, I mean, they were saying prayer, fasting, humiliation before God, pray that if people have not come to know Jesus Christ, they need to come to know, I mean, I'm talking serious stuff here. And it was all about, it was almost always done at a time when, you know, either they were in the middle of the war and they were seeking God's favor, or you had droughts, or you had times when people finally realized, man, we've kind of forgotten God for a little while. We need to call, uh, get get on our knees and, and call on the God that made our nation great in the first place. I mean, you see it all throughout our, our history. Even even one of the things we actually do this at Patriot Academy, when we do a we, we do these mock legislative sessions and, and what they used to do in, in state legislatures across the country, I mean this was this was not just in one or two, but what they used to do is when you'd have your first day of your legislative session, they would bring the House and Senate together, the court, you know, everybody come in and be almost like a state of the union type uh, that people are familiar with watching on the on the presidential on the on the federal side. But it'd be kind of like that. You bring everybody in from your state government, and then they would have a pastor come in and actually preach a sermon before the session kicked off, so that they could basically say, "Hey, we're going to go make law." Let's make sure we hear from the great lawgiver. Now, they don't do that in most states anymore, and so we started doing that at Patriot Academy. When we start our legislative session, where these students come in and play the role of legislators and learn how to do this stuff, we actually have a pastor come in first and give them what we call a charge. And, I mean, that was the MO, the modus operandi of our founding fathers, uh, and, and you can tell when they moved away from it. In fact, Romans tells us, although they, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Few verses later says since they didn't think it was worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, that's what happened to us. We used to acknowledge God in, in all throughout our country, and we decided really about 50 years ago, starting with Supreme Court decisions in the early 60s, uh, that we were going to start pushing God out of the public square, and that we just didn't think it was even worthwhile to acknowledge Him publicly, and it has had a, a devastating, devastating impact on our culture. Yes. Now you've got a legal background here, so tell us a little bit what it means, separation of church and state. A lot of people don't realize churches and individuals can't violate that particular clause. Only the government can. That's right. Good, great point, Pat. I mean, it, it, we, we flipped it on its head. It's actually kind of funny. I'll go to law schools or college campuses and I'll say, okay, where is, where is this phrase separation of church and state? And they'll often say it's in, you know, it's in the First Amendment or it's in the Constitution. I'll say, no, it's not, in, you know, or it's in the Declaration. It's not. And typically in law schools, they'll say, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's first, I've, already, I've even had a class on First Amendment separation of church and state. And so I get them to, you know, I say, open up your constitutions. Typically their answer is, you know, they don't give us a constitution here at law school. They just tell us what to think about it. So I had to pass out pocket constitutions. And then we open up the First Amendment. And I go, okay, look, let's just all read it together. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Nowhere in the constitution does it say separation of church and state. That phrase, that, that particular vernacular, if you will, that comes from one letter of one founding father, well after the Constitution was established, more than a decade after, 
and it was actually an individual act on his part, not even a government act. And, and what it was was one letter where Thomas Jefferson wrote a letter to the Danbury Baptist Association, and he was responding to their concern that because of the, the freedom of religion being in the, in the First Amendment the way it was, their concern was, okay, is it possible that people would begin to interpret this to mean that government was giving us our freedom of religion rather than a requirement to protect it? You know, a lot of people today think the Bill of Rights gives you these rights. Very important that we recognize the Bill of Rights doesn't give you any rights. The Bill of Rights is actually protecting the rights that God gave you and saying government can't touch those things. And government's job is to protect those rights for you. So anyway, that was kind of their question. And Jefferson responded and said, don't worry. There's a wall of separation of church and state. Government will never come in and tell you how to worship unless you're doing something that, you know, violates the public good, like a child sacrifice. You know, if you got, you know, if you got some crazy religion that's doing child sacrifice or whatever, that's when the state would have a, uh, a duty to come in. But otherwise, state can't tell you at all how to worship, what church you go to, or, or any of those things. And man, I mean, you talk about totally taken out of context. That letter was virtually ignored for you know years and years and years wasn't quoted by any court wasn't considered the you know uh, the the interpretation of the first amendment at all and then what happened was was in the 1900s courts started quoting the full letter actually late 1800s the first time but they quoted the full letter so they didn't take it out of context they quoted the full letter to make the argument for the fact that we're a religious nation, a Christian nation, and that you've got to let people live out their religion, and you can't use the state to prevent it. So it was initially used for the right thing. But then in 1947, Hugo Black was on the, on the U.S. Supreme Court, he's a former KKK you know, guy, and just you know, not good. And he, he is the one that gave us this opinion where he lifted the eight words, and he used only the wall of separation of church and state. He changed the meaning of it. And people started quoting from his decision, and for the next 70 years, we've quoted that phrase 3,000 times in, ju in federal judicial opinions and hardly quote the First Amendment at all. I mean, you, the, the actual words of the First Amendment are quoted very little, but this phrase that people began to think the Constitution actually said was quoted all the time, and courts were just going off the rails because they weren't going back to the actual Constitution and what the founders actually did. Now, Pat, I wasted all that time. Of, of describing Jefferson's letter, because in truth, Jefferson's letter should be completely irrelevant when we're trying to figure out what the First Amendment means, because Jefferson had nothing to do with the First Amendment. He was not one of the framers of the Constitution. He was not in Congress when the First Amendment, you know, the Bill of Rights was was adopted. Uh, wasn't in the state legislature, state legislatures that were ratifying that amendment. So we shouldn't be taking his letter and applying it. We should be going to guys like James Madison and others and saying, what did they mean by this Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion? What do they mean by that? And, and Madison told us. He said what we meant was just you don't want to have a single national denomination, which for them was the Church of England. That's what they were trying to prevent. They wanted to make sure we didn't end up with another Church of England. So sorry for going so long on that one. But oh, no, that's great. That, that, that's a big, big issue, and we've got, had such a misinterpretation of what it means and even where it came from. Yeah, in fact, you know, Jefferson, the guy that's credited with this in 1803, granted money, you know, and he signed that bill uh, for a church to do missionary work among the Kaskaskian Indians. That's right. You know, so... That's right, and a year before that, in fact, two days after he wrote the letter to the Danbury Baptist Association, so I think it was January 1st, 1802, he writes the letter, and then two days later on January 3rd, he goes to church at the U.S. Capitol, 
So, so let that one sink in for a minute. Churches meeting at the U.S. Capitol on federal property, and Jefferson shows up to run them all out and tell them they can't worship on federal property. No, no, he didn't do that. He actually showed up to worship with them. So, I mean, he's the guy that started church services at the Capitol. Well, we've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed Pat's show today. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold a conference, please give him a call at 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website, That's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online on the homepage. You will find we have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. Be sure to share our website with your family, friends, and your church. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Yeah.